Please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're reading from the book of Acts. The mission is possible. Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. Join with me as I read. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many, many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who, said to the, who, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Father God, we thank you so much for your infallible and inspired word of God that encourages us and that gives us hope for a future yet to come. Thank you for uh, the opportunity we have as a church to be a part of your incredible mission. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Bill. Well, we're continuing in our series, our worship series that we began last Sunday, last week, from the book of Acts that we are simply calling Unstoppable. And I love that word, unstoppable. It's a word that really, it best describes the church in the book of Acts here. And uh, in fact, let me encourage you to take some time uh, during the week, maybe as your devotions, and begin to read through the book of Acts. And you will find there is a lot of action going on. And uh, the, the spreading of the gospel, the church spreading from Jerusalem, all the way to the ends of the earth. It is unstoppable. And they were a church on mission who turned the world upside down. In fact, that was a description, a phrase that uh, some people used of these apostles and these believers here in Jerusalem. They were turning the world upside down. They were so unstoppable. They were so much passion-filled and, and filled with zeal of sharing and spreading the gospel. And that's really... That's my heart's desire for us. That's why we're going through the book of Acts here uh, for the next few weeks. Is really my heart's desire is for us to be a church on mission, for us to be a church that's unstoppable, an unstoppable force for God. 
a church who is turning our world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The danger, though, in fact, the danger of the church in every age and in every culture is to cease being a movement on mission. That's the danger for any church, in every church. And it's the danger for our church to cease being a movement that is on mission for God and instead to start to become a a monument that ceases to move forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And so that's our challenge as a church family. That's our challenge this year. Are we, as a church, a monument or are we a movement on mission? And for us as individuals, as individuals, for you, is the church just a, a place you attend on Sundays or is it a movement you are personally part of? Is it a movement that you live out during the week, Monday through Saturday? Because you're on mission as a Christ follower. Well, this morning, uh, I want to show you something fascinating uh, at the end of the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles there, I encourage you to turn to the very end of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 28, and I just want to show you something that at least is fascinating to me as we begin this message here. Uh, you'll find that in the closing verses of Acts 28, the Apostle Paul here is under house arrest in Rome. He has a prison guard with him, so he can't necessarily leave the house, but he, he has some freedom within the house. He can actually receive visitors. And so many people have come to see Paul at his house, and He has been preaching to them. He's been proclaiming the gospel to many, many people. And what I want you to notice specifically is in the last two verses of the last chapter of the book of Acts here. Verses 30 and 31, look what it says. He, that is Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with what? All boldness and without hindrance. Now in the Greek text, that word boldness is actually the very last word in the book of Acts. That's fascinating to me. Because Luke here, remember Luke is the author of the book of Acts. We're talking about the same man who wrote the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke is kind of like volume one. Acts here, the book of Acts, is kind of like volume 2, and they're written by the same author. And Luke here seems to be making a contrast. A contrast between the beginning of the book of Acts and the end of the book of Acts. You say, what is that contrast? Well, notice in your notes, coming up on the screen here, at the end of Acts, Paul and the apostles are spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth, and they're doing so with what? Boldness. But at the beginning of Acts, The apostles seem to be waiting in Jerusalem in confusion and in fear. At the end of Acts, you have Paul and the apostles, and they are proclaiming the gospel. They're teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're doing so with boldness. But that's not how Acts begins. It begins with this band of 11 men and a few women. In fact, later... In this same chapter, chapter 1, we learned that this number is around 120. But in these opening verses here, in fact, even before Luke 
before he even writes Acts, in this time frame, right after the crucifixion and before the ascension of Christ, there, you almost get the impression that at this point there's not even 120 of them yet. And they're frightened, and they're confused, and they're disoriented. And let me tell you, they are not thinking about proclaiming the gospel with boldness. Remember, Jesus has just been crucified. And they're rather scared. They're fearful here. And they're just thinking about how to survive another day without the Jewish authorities finding out that they are associated with this guy named Jesus. Remember, just a few days earlier, Peter couldn't even muster up enough courage to identify himself with Jesus the night before his crucifixion. And you know the story. Instead, what did he do? He denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. And so there's this contrast that Luke seems to be drawing for us here between the very opening verses of the book of Acts and the very end of Acts. In fact, not just the end, but really through the whole book of Acts. We can all identify, I think, at least I can, with these apostles, with these disciples and a few other people, a few of the women, I think we can identify with them at the very beginning. What I want us to do, what I want us to learn as we go through this book is to begin to identify with them as they move from fearfulness to boldness in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, their boldness to proclaim the gospel begins to show up as early as Acts chapter 2 when Peter stands and he begins to preach this phenomenal sermon and then you really see it burst forth on the scene, their boldness in Acts chapter 4. In fact, Peter and John proclaim in Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And here's what the people then said about Peter and John in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Oh wow, that is so awesome. Because these guys, listen to me, these guys are just ordinary people like us. And yet they move from hiding in fear to proclaiming Christ with boldness. They move from mission impossible to mission possible in a matter of about 40 days. The disciples have been told by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem. Luke has already mentioned this at the end of his gospel, and now he's repeating it here in the opening verses of Acts. The disciples are to wait for what Jesus has called the promise of the Father. And during this 40-day interval from Passover to Pentecost, they are to wait for this promise of the Father, which is really the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so these days here, these 40 days are kind of days of preparation. And the great question that arises from this, as we look at the beginning, the very opening verses of Acts, and the rest of the book of Acts through the closing is, man, how did these disciples move, transition from fearfulness to boldness? What took place? What happened? 
I mean, how did they move from hiding in fear to literally turning the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ? How did they move from mission impossible to mission possible? Well, last Sunday we learned that when Jesus left this earth, right before he left, he gave us a daunting task, a daunting mission. And that is to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And we saw last week, if you want to fill in your notes, here's the other next point coming up, that the church is to continue the mission that Jesus began. And what we want to see this morning is that that mission is possible. It's not mission impossible, it's mission possible with the resources that Jesus has left us with. Jesus did not leave us empty-handed. Jesus did not leave us without help. He did not leave us without any hope that the mission is possible. In fact, Jesus has given, listen to me, He has given us everything we need to accomplish the mission. We are without excuse. He's given us a solid foundation. He's given us a sufficient power. He's given us a clear-cut mandate. And He has given us a confident hope that He is coming back. We have everything we need for mission possible. So what are we waiting for? It's mission possible. Let me show you this. Let's break it down. Number one, the mission is possible with a solid foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many times, Jesus told his disciples, as he was ministering with them for those three years on here on earth, as they were walking around Galilee and Jerusalem, Judea and whatnot, many times he told his disciples that he would be arrested, he would be crucified, and that he would be raised on the third day. And you know what? These things happened just as Jesus said. The hopes of the disciples were dashed through unbelief when Jesus was crucified. But later they became convinced of Jesus' resurrection. And the question is, why? What took place? What happened here? Well, Luke tells us something in Luke chapter, or in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Look at it with me. It says, he, that's referring to Jesus, also presented himself, and what's the next word? Alive. Isn't that phenomenal? Jesus presented himself alive after being crucified and buried. And he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days in speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. See, Jesus knew something about these men that he had gathered around him. He knew that his disciples needed some tangible proof that he was alive. And that's exactly what Jesus gave them. He gave his disciples what Luke refers to as many infallible proofs over a period of 40 days. And so what were some of these infallible proofs? Well, let me just give you two real quickly here that we find right here in the text. First of all, Jesus gave his disciples visual proof of his resurrection. Jesus, in other words, showed his disciples his physical body on many different occasions during this 40-day period. They could look at him. They could touch him. In fact, some of you may remember the story of Doubting Thomas. 
Doubting Thomas didn't believe when the other disciples told him, hey, Jesus has risen, he's alive. He's like, ah, no way, I can't believe that. Jesus has to appear to him. What does Jesus tell Doubting Thomas? Hey, you don't believe me? Just touch my, my hands. Look for yourself. Touch and see. And he's presenting these infallible proofs. Jesus ate with his disciples. He had breakfast with them. He appeared to Peter, James, Mary Magdalene, and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus showed himself to seven of the apostles once in Galilee, to ten of the apostles once in Jerusalem, to, eleven, uh, to all eleven apostles two times, and to five hundred people at one time in Galilee. Now why? Why would Jesus do this? Why do you think Jesus showed himself so many times to his disciples over this 40-day period, because these disciples had a responsibility of bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, if Jesus was dead, then where's your motivation to keep going with the mission? To continue the mission that your leader began if your leader's dead? There is no motivation. There is no reason. Listen, never forget, we serve a risen Savior. We continue a mission where our leader is not dead. He is alive. And Jesus provided visual proof to his disciples during this time. Second of all, Jesus gave his disciples verbal proof of his resurrection. Jesus taught the disciples during this 40-day period. You say, well, what did he teach them? Well, he taught them things about the kingdom of God. And we could just... The kingdom of God here, one very brief description of how, because we don't have time to get into what that is, it's really, it's about the rule of God, the reign of God with God's people. And God's kingdom was manifested through the nation of Israel. That was God's chosen people to the degree that they followed his covenant. The kingdom was then present in the person of Jesus Christ when he ministered here on earth. And in this present age, the church age as it's called, the age of grace that we are in now, listen, the kingdom is spiritually manifested when Christ now reigns in the hearts of his people, the church. But there is a sense, there is a future sense in which God's kingdom will come in fullness and power when Jesus returns to judge the world and to rule as the king of kings for a thousand years on this earth. Chris alluded to it before he prayed. Man, can you not wait for that time to come? We serve a risen Savior. And He is the King. And He is coming back as we're going to see. So why is the resurrection so important? Well, notice this in your notes, the importance of the resurrection. Everything we believe stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of our Christian faith. If Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. As one author said, without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian faith would have been stillborn. For a living faith cannot survive a dead Savior. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God, that He is truth, that all His teachings are true, that all His promises are true. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Christ of the Old Testament, the Lord of the universe, and that He is going to come again as the judge and the King of the world. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption 
so that everyone who repents and believes on Him will receive forgiveness for their sins and receive eternal life. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, it is the foundation of our mission as a church because of His resurrection. Folks, do you realize, we, we proclaim with boldness, we proclaim with confidence, with certainty, we're not wishy-washy about it. We don't doubt it. We don't wonder if it's true or not true. We proclaim with certainty that Jesus died for our sins, that He was raised from the dead, and that He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and that He is coming again in power to reign over all the earth. That is our message. It is a glorious message. It is the gospel message. It is the mission that Jesus has commissioned us to continue. And the foundation is his resurrection. The mission is possible, number two, with a sufficient power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but instead to wait for the promise of the Father. And Jesus explains why in verse 5. Look what he says. He tells his disciples, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he doesn't tell them exactly when this is going to happen. He just tells them it's going to happen. And then Jesus repeats this promise in verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we learned last Sunday. Is our, it's the theme verse for the whole book of Acts. It, you can even use it as an outline for the book of Acts. Look what he says. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now before the day of Pentecost, which takes place in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit empowered many, many of God's people for God's work. You see this over and over again, especially throughout the Old Testament. But he did not permanently indwell every believer just yet. But that day was coming when these disciples would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this word baptized, it, it simply means to immerse a person in water. In fact, that's where we get the idea or, or the, our doctrine of baptism. It's why we, when we baptize somebody here, we uh, immerse them all the way under because the word baptized, that's what it means to immerse a person in water. In fact, it's the idea of being totally identified with something. And so when you're baptized, you are identifying yourself first with Christ and then with His church, His people. In this case, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you are totally identifying yourself, submitting yourself, yielding yourself, walking in accordance with the Holy Spirit. The phrase, be baptized, indicates that God is the one doing the baptizing and that these disciples merely did the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, this initial reception of the Holy Spirit follows the pattern of Acts 1.8. You go to Acts chapter 2 and the believers there in Jerusalem receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8 and 10, the believers in Judea and Samaria receive the Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 19, the believers in Ephesus receive the Spirit as well. And since then, every Christian receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of their salvation. Here's the point. The mission 
is possible because as believers in Jesus Christ, we've been given what? The power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, when you receive Christ, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment, you are born again by the Spirit, and the Spirit seals you and indwells you. And we now have the same Spirit, the same Spirit that encouraged, the same Spirit that energized and equipped these early Christians for the mission. Listen, it's the same Spirit that encourages us, energizes us, and equips us for the mission even today. The Holy Spirit, listen, it does a lot of things for us. And this is not a series on the Holy Spirit, but trust me, it does a lot of things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That's why Jesus gave us the Spirit, because He knew as a po- disciples like these ordinary guys, we're just like Him, and to do the mission, we can't do it on our own. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to do for us what we can't do on our own. And there's two things in particular, especially throughout the book of Acts, that I want to highlight that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives, even today. Notice this. Number one, what the Holy Spirit produces. It produces deep conviction in our witness of Christ. Deep conviction. You go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, and the Apostle Paul says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, he says. Listen, when we walk in the power of the Spirit, when we are being led by the Spirit, when we're submitted or controlled by the Spirit, the effect of that, the impact of that, the result of that is a deep certainty, a a confidence, and a conviction about Jesus Christ and His saving work on the cross. In other words, here's what I mean. There's a conviction within our heart And I mean a deep conviction that the one thing people need more than anything else in this world is Jesus Christ. There is a conviction that He is our only hope of salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces that deep conviction within us. And if you don't have that, you ought to be asking yourself what's going on. Either you're not a believer and you don't have the Holy Spirit or you're a believer but you have quenched the Holy Spirit in your life. Because one of the effects of the Holy Spirit is we have a deep conviction that when we see people, we can't help but think, you know what, they may need this, this, and this in life, but what they really need is Jesus Christ. Jesus is their answer. He's their only answer. And God wants to use me to proclaim to them that answer, that hope. Which brings us to the second thing that the Holy Spirit produces in our life. He produces a bold courage in our witness of Christ. This courage is is clearly seen in Peter and the other disciples as they boldly proclaim Jesus In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter is filled with the Spirit. He begins to preach 
to these religious leaders, leaders called the Sanhedrin, and he preaches that Jesus is their only hope of salvation. Why? Because he has a deep conviction that that's the reality, that that's the truth. Why? Because he has seen Jesus crucified, he's seen him buried, and he has seen him alive. And that has made an impact on him. And in verse 31 of the same chapter, these disciples are filled with the Spirit and they speak the Word of God. It says, boldly in the face of persecution. And after being put in prison for preaching Christ, Peter and the apostles then are brought before the religious leaders where the high priest comes to them and he asks them outright in chapter 5, verse 28, hey, we strictly charged you not to teach in His name. And yet, here you are. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. But Peter and the apostles answered, and here's what they said to the high priest, we must obey God rather than men. That's courage. And when the religious leaders heard this, let me tell you, they were furious. And they beat them. And they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And how do you think they responded? Well, you look at Acts 5, verses 41 and 42, and it tells us the apostles left the Sanhedrin, get this, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I ask you, man, where does that kind of boldness come from? Where does that kind of conviction and courage come from? Let me tell you, it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. I tell my boys, don't be a wussy. That's what we have so many of in American Christianity. We have wussy Christians. God, that, the Holy Spirit doesn't produce wussy Christians. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Listen, to reach our community and beyond with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reach your friends, to reach your neighbors, to reach your co-workers with the gospel, we must have boldness to speak about Jesus, and we must have courage to even suffer for Jesus if necessary. And this kind of bold courage only comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've been given that. The mission is possible. We have the solid foundation of the resurrection, and we have the sufficient power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, we also have a sharp focus. The mission is possible with a sharp focus on the Great Commission. When the disciples hear about the promise of the Holy Spirit, it's interesting the question they ask. In fact, it's, it's, it's uh... well, notice the question. Look what they ask in verse 6. Yes, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, these disciples here, they, they knew that the Old Testament promise of God's Spirit was a promise for the last days 
when God would establish his kingdom on the earth and restore his people. They knew that. These were not totally ignorant men here. So this is, this is not a foolish question that they asked their Lord Jesus. It's a very reasonable question. And so for this reason, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. In fact, Jesus is very gracious with them. As someday, Jesus will come, and Jesus will restore the kingdom to Israel. But Jesus doesn't ignore the issue either. He doesn't ignore the question. Instead, what he does, he uses it as an opportunity to refocus these men. To refocus the disciples back on the mission. Back on what's most important. Notice Jesus' response to them in verses 7 and 8. Look at it. And he said to them, that is Jesus, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, Jesus, he doesn't correct the fact of his future rule over Israel. Why? Because that is true. But rather, he corrects the disciples' desire to know the timing of it. In other words, Jesus tells them, and I love this about our Lord, he tells them in a nice way, but in a firm way. That's none of your business. Only the Father knows when. And then he basically tells them after that, if I can summarize verse 8, listen, your focus here, your focus is on being my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's your focus. What you're asking about is not your focus. Only the Father knows that. It's not in your business. And so what do we take away from this for ourselves? How do we apply this? What do we learn from the apostles' question and Jesus' answer here? We'll notice this in your notes and on the screen. Our focus is not about when Jesus will return. That's not our focus. Our focus is witnessing about Jesus to all peoples. Isn't it interesting that the very last thing that Jesus said on this earth before he ascends up into heaven was, hey, whatever else you get wrong, don't get this wrong. Don't try to predict when I will return. Instead, be my witnesses. Be my witnesses. Be my witnesses. God has appointed the times and seasons for all things, and let me tell you, they are kept in the secret of his own wisdom. Such things are not for us to know. They would not be good for us to know any more than knowing the time of your own death would be good for us to know. And so Jesus is basically telling his disciples, just as he is telling us now today, don't get distracted trying to figure out when I will return. Don't get sidetracked by that. Instead, stay focused on the mission of being my witnesses to the ends of the earth, beginning here at home. In other words, our focus is not to be on prophetic timetables, but on the great commission of Jesus Christ. 
Focus on witnessing to people who need Jesus. Focus on your neighbors and coworkers who need Jesus as their Savior. Focus on unreached people groups who need to hear about Jesus before He returns. That's the focus. And yet, and yet, hang on, this doesn't mean we just ignore the return of Jesus Christ. Oh, no. Let me tell you, as Christ followers, Jesus has commanded us to watch and wait. And so we are watching and waiting for Jesus to come again. And that's why, number four, the mission is possible because we have a sure hope of His return. We have a sure hope of the second coming. Now, you kind of got to step back here a little bit. And just kind of imagine with me, and I don't know about you, but I wish, oh, how I wish I could have been there to see what the disciples saw next. Because what they saw was so amazing, it left them standing in awe. Look what Luke writes, verses 9 through 10. He says, now when they had spoken these things, or now when he, that is Jesus, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. What a sight to behold. The disciples, can you imagine this? They see Jesus taken up to heaven before their very eyes. And as far as Luke is concerned, the ascension of Jesus is just as real as the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it's interesting, four times Luke uses words here that says this is something the disciples saw. So this is not just some made-up story. This is not a fable. This is something they saw with their very own eyes. Jesus rose up into the sky, and he disappeared into a cloud. And as the disciples were watching Jesus ascend into the sky, I can just imagine, I'm pretty sure, they were standing in awe with their mouths wide open. And they are just gazing. And here they are staring at this cloud. And I can almost guarantee you it was Peter who probably turns to the other disciples and says, hey, 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 guys, we've seen this before. Well, at least me, Peter, and John, we've, or, or James and John, we've seen this before. He'll come back. You know, he disappeared on us once before, but he'll come back again. And so here Peter and the disciples are standing and they're gazing into the sky when two angels, Luke refers to them as two men in white apparel, and most Bible scholars believe it were, they were angels who suddenly appeared and they asked them this great question, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And then the angels go on to explain in verse 11, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And don't miss, don't miss here what the angels say about Jesus' return. The same Jesus who left, what will he do? One day return. And he will return the same way that he left. 
This tells us that Jesus is coming back personally, literally, visibly, and bodily. And we might also add that his coming will be no less astonishing and no less surprising. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus is coming again. The actual, historical Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of this world, let me tell you, He is returning to the earth one more time. And it kind of just blows your mind, doesn't it? So what should we take away from this? What do do we learn from this? From the angel's question and answer. I think the application is pretty clear. Look at it in your notes. And that's this. Don't just stand there. Don't just stand there. Or in, in some of our cases, sit there. There's work to be done. And Jesus is coming soon. That's the application. You go back to the question the angels asked. Why do you stand there gazing up into heaven? Listen, this is more than just a question. This is is an exhortation to these guys. It's an exhortation to us. It's as, as if the angels are saying, don't just stand there gazing in the clouds. Listen, get going. Get going on the mission at hand. Before Jesus left, he told us exactly what to do. We are to be witnesses for Christ to the ends of the earth. And after 2,000 years, let me tell you, the job is still not done. Which means there's more than enough work to keep us all busy until Jesus returns. And while we're focused on the mission, let this, let this motivate you. Let us be motivated by the sure hope of Jesus' return. Just think. Jesus is coming again. Listen, don't let that just pass over your head. Think about it. Jesus is coming again. The king is returning to establish his kingdom. And so be strengthened by this hope. And let us press forward with passion to continue the mission. The mission, it really is possible. Jesus has given us everything we need to continue the mission He began. We have a solid foundation of His resurrection. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. We have the sufficient power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that empowered the disciples is the same Holy Spirit that empowers us. We have a sharp focus on the Great Commission. We have a clear mandate, and we have the sure hope of His second coming. Jesus is coming again. He is returning. And when we, listen, give ourselves to this mission, God will use ordinary people just like us. God will use ordinary churches just like us to turn our world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me throw out one final question before we close. In light of all of this, and especially in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again, let me ask you this question. Are you ready to meet Jesus? If Jesus were to come back today, would you be ready to meet him. Listen, if you're not sure how to answer that question, 
If you're kind of thinking in your mind right now, boy, I sure hope so, or I'm not sure, then more than likely, you are not ready at all. But you can be ready by opening your heart up to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin, and trusting Him as your Savior and Lord today. Listen, lay aside your trust in your own self or anything you have done and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And you will be ready to meet the Lord when He comes again. And should the Lord tarry and we die before that time comes, you will be ready just as well. As Chris alluded to, that's the glorious hope we have. One of our dear saints, who's been a member here at this church for over 25 years, Esther Bell. Because of her faith in Jesus Christ, she was ready to meet the Lord. Are you ready? And until Jesus comes, the mission is possible. And are we giving our lives to that? It's worth everything. It's the only thing. Let's bow our heads. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we thank you. Oh, how we thank you for your Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that you loved us enough to send your Son to die for our sins, to pay that penalty, that we could have the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And Lord, that he didn't stay dead, but he resurrected, he ascended into heaven where he sits at your right hand, he intercedes on our behalf, and Lord, he is coming again. And in the meantime, he has left us a mission, a mission to continue. And oh, how we need your help, Lord. Lord, may we be compelled by your love to give ourselves to this. May we be captured by your mission to give our lives to this. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, may we have a conviction that this is what's most important, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power to save. And may we have the courage to proclaim it. May we not let ourselves be muzzled, but may we proclaim with boldness. And Lord, if there should be one who is not ready even now, I pray that you would work in their hearts. You would grant them the faith to repent of their sin and to trust you as their Lord and Savior, that they would pray to you right now as the praise team sings to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. As the praise team does sing, I, I pray and ask for you to respond, to, to rededicate, to recommit, to renew your life to the mission that Jesus has left us with. He's given us everything we need. We are without excuse.